Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by former Chelsea, Everton and Scotland international, Patrick Nevin. Pat, a big warm welcome to the show. Connor, it's an absolute delight to be here. Um, and hopefully I will help enlighten in one or two areas. Well, certainly about myself anyway. Yeah, Pat, I mean, we're just discussing our affair. I didn't know. It's always good to have a fellow Irish citizen on board too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was the last member of my family of six, one of six siblings. Uh, but my folks, sort of a uh, generation, they would have been Republic of Ireland supporters. And I, my kind of siblings, half of them would be Republic of Ireland, half of them would be Scotland. But we both love both countries. Um, but in that I ended up playing for Scotland, I kind of had to support Scotland. <laughs> but I did anyway. Uh, but it's great. Though. I've still got a, a great affinity. And I go back regularly. And it's great to have the passport. And it's not just for the Brexit nonsense, stupidity, madness, whatever you want to call it, that the Brits went through. Um, but it's just actually, it's just lovely to have something that says it's, it's a part of who you were and who you are. Really fantastic. I mean, with that being said, there's probably no better place to be than to begin, Pat, by um, explaining your very first football memory. Um, yeah, really early on, probably... 70, 69, 70, around about there. And I remember going to games when I was very young, uh, team to Celtic games. My dad took my, myself, but all the family as well. And um, it, I mean, the one that really imprinted was 1970 European Cup final, Celtic beat with Feyenoord, uh, which was heartbreaking. And it, a young heart can be broken with football. Um, but that time we were all, like Celtic were winning nine in a row. <clears throat> they had players that had won the European Cup 67. That team was aging, and the new team with Doug Leash and McGrain and David Hay and Conley was coming in, McCarry. <clears throat> there was some team. And it was great to watch football in those days. So, But I, I loved playing at least as much as going to watch it. Um, but it had never been in my mind at that age, six, seven, eight, to be a professional football. Never crossed my mind. And still hadn't crossed my mind by the time I actually was a professional footballer, which is a bit weird to manage to get into the pro game. Um, but I still wanted to do a degree by the time I was 16, 17, even though I'd been signed by Celtic as an S form, um, and lots of people thought I could make it. Um, I had other things in my mind that I wanted to do it and I wanted to study because my difference was I had an absolute pure love of the game. I loved playing, absolutely loved playing football, making money out of it, being famous, all that stuff. Not interested, don't care. Just mm. that, that's secondary stuff. Um, so and I, I know a lot of people find it a wee bit strange, um, and it's it's nice to earn money. You got to earn money, but all I ever thought I needed was enough to get by. Um, so I do see a lot of people that go into it for that that side of it. You know, they want to be famous. They want to make their stamp in the world. <laughs> they want to make get the money, get the big flash cars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Absolutely no interest in whatsoever at any point in my life. And I kind of showed anyway when I did become a footballer because I didn't go down any of those paths at any point. So I kept on doing it for the love of it and eventually um, just kind of fell into playing football. I was playing the boys club game uh, for the fun of it and I played against Clyde Reserves, scored a cracker. Uh, their manager spotted me and said, wanted me to become a footballer. Do you want to become a footballer? Play for my team? And I went, nah, I'm doing a degree, mate. And then he said, you can do both at the same time. I can give you 30 quid a week. And I said, where's the pen? Give me it. Because... <laughs> can do both what you can actually do both you can study and you can play professionally <clears throat> excuse me and get a few quid and buy some albums 
for those youngsters listening, that means downloads and music. Um, go to see some gigs. So that was kind of weird background that I had coming into it. But what it did, and it sounds lighthearted, right? But let's get a wee bit back to the serious part. I knew it helped me. I knew it made me better. I knew I was taking all the stress out of it. Because if I failed, so what? Go and do something else. And the amount of times I've tried to explain to young people getting into the game, look, I know you love the game, and you know, but see if you can actually keep on playing it for the love of it and not do it for fear of losing, especially if you're a creative type, then you'll probably be better. Um, and if you're relaxed and comfortable with your skills, as opposed to scared and nervous and worried, that'll probably be better as well. I certainly think so. There's a lot of, I mean, I was 16, 17 when I was thinking this. There's a lot of thinking coming out, coming out of Sports in America, particularly just now that's beginning to go down this line a wee bit. It's not that you've got to win everything, you've got to be, you know, win or die or, you know, first and worst and all that sort of stuff. Um, a lot of people are saying, actually, you need to see if you're around as a human being, you, you're probably better at a lot of things because you're not doing it through fear. Um, anyway, I naturally knew that when I was like 17. <laughs> so that's how I ended up getting into the game. And when I was in there, I just told myself, love it. I love doing it. Be dedicated. Absolutely. There's, no, there's a dichotomy there that people don't understand. Be dedicated. And nobody was more dedicated to me to the fitness and the craft of it. Nobody was staying longer afterwards. No one was going for the long distance runs I was doing afterwards. All that stuff. It doesn't mean I didn't care. But it meant that I understood that failure was, if you fail, you fail. But it wouldn't stop me giving everything. So it was a very unusual start. Yeah, there's a phrase Matthew McConaughey had in his book, Green Lights, that comes to mind. You know, be less impressed, more involved. And it seemed you were you were less impressed by everything else the game had to offer and you were just kind of focused on playing it. But mm -hmm. if we were to say where that was traceable back to, it's interesting to see how much of an impact both Celtic and your father had in your upbringing with the football in terms of attending Celtic Park every other Saturday, in terms of how much of an impact your father was on you. Because I read by an early age too, you'd accumulated, must have been like 10,000 hours of practice alone through your father, who's an absolutely fanatical football coach. Yeah. And of course, I think I thought he was doing it for the love of it. And, and he was to a degree, but he thought I was good enough really early on. Um, but in a wee bit more depth, I see where you're going now, and you're absolutely spot on. When you have this kind of this Judeo-Christian ethic, you know, okay, brought up Catholic, but the idea is, it's a kind of Christian Democrat attitude of help everyone else. You know, it's a socialism, but it's a helping everyone else and being part of the community. Um, and those ethical stances. Now, everyone, every ism you want to name and every religion you want to name has got massive nightmares around it to some degree. But if you dip, rip it down to the core and you look at the core of what they were supposed to be originally, it was about helping everybody else get on and being kind and you know, as well as, you know, if you go back to the Bible, it's, you have to make the best use of your talents, that sort of stuff. Um, but that was the background, yeah. My dad, you know, built that into us. Be the best you possibly can. You know, fight to be the best. Be a winner. Do all that sort of stuff. But also, uh, I'm sorry, something happened behind me there, but it's okay. Um, but while you're doing all that, being a winner, it's okay to do it ethically. It's fine to do it ethically, and ethically might mean don't cheat. 
So I play 850 games in my career, never dive once. And you, you telephone a current player now and they go, pardon? <laughs> but they go, what? <laughs> I remember saying that to uh, Robbie Savage and he goes, I don't believe you. And I went, go and look at the footage, mate. <laughs> I did the opposite. I tried to stay up rather than fall down. So, you know, you can have an ethical balance within it. And I'm, when you get right into that, that's the reason why you can you can push it a certain direction. And okay, you, you can sound a wee bit um, earnest now and again when you're doing this. And I and I do it sometimes, hopefully not all the time. Um, but there's nothing wrong with that. And I it was a way for me to get through it, a way for me to survive inside that industry that I was very much an outsider in it. Um, because there was other people out with that industry that were more like me, people who were writers or artists or musicians. Um, so I could do the job, be dedicated to it, and then go back to the real world after it every day. Hmm. And was there and any pair? Underline my dad, underline my dad as well. You're absolutely right. My first book that I, I wrote uh, was out three years ago, two and a bit years ago. Um, it basically was a pion to my dad. It was a love, love letter to my dad and all that he did for us and all the work and how he showed me to be not only a good parent and a good father, but a good human being. Um, and so I learned massive amounts off of him. But then he learned massive amounts off of Jock Steen because we'd go watch Jock Steen as a, a manager, but also as a, a manipulator in a good way and also somebody who used the concept of socialism as a group to get the team to play better. So, yeah, it was all mixed in there. And it's, it was kind of hard to get it all into that first book, <laughs> Accidental Football, because there was a lot of unusual thinking in there in comparison to what you get with most footballs. When you zoom back out, I mean, football is such a great teacher. You know, it's more than a sport. It's like a game of life. And I suppose where I'm going with this next question is, I mean, having a high degree of self-awareness at such a young age, was there any part of you that when you were leaving Clyde to move to the big bright lights of London and sign for Chelsea at that time, was there any part of you that was perhaps worried that you would lose those values that you were raised upon, that you didn't know what you were getting yourself in, into at the time? Or was it just, I'm going with this, let's see what comes? I was totally relaxed. <laughs> I was so laid back about it. Um... Going to a big city, but I'd been to London before. I used to go to gigs now and again, like into real around Europe, you know. So even at 17, 18, I was kind of cool with that sort of stuff. And if you come from Glasgow, it's a big city as well. Um, the fears that you should have, that they say you should, but most people would, are you going to fail? Well, so if I, what if I did? Just go back and finish your degree. I've got a year left. Fine. It's cool. Um, that sort of fear. What sort of fear about London? Because I could see that you could go to see concerts there. I've got a chance of doing really well on a job there. Um, I'll meet some really interesting people down there. It's a brilliant city where you can, you know, there's a kind of big autodidactic thing that you have with the, the Scots particularly. I think the Irish are very much the same as well. I think it's a, a kind of, there's nothing wrong with bettering yourself by learning, be it reading, be it going to galleries or look at the world. And London's a, it's such a fantastic place for that. I mean, it's, it's got its downsides, but thank goodness it's got its downsides. But if you can live in London and you've got enough money to get by, it can be a fabulous place. Um, so you can go to the... I remember one week going to see, I think it was Medea, you know, at, at the Royal Festival Hall. And then the next night going to see a very young Pogues. I'm thinking, yeah, this is what I like. This is all over the place here. Um, so no, there was no fear for me. 
um, interest. I was interested. I was excited. Probably still not the right word either. Just intrigued to know how I could do down when I went down to London. It's it's an attitude that the chairman, Mr. Bates, Ken Bates, just could not get his head around. <laughs> just couldn't get at all. And the manager, I give him his due, he could. He after a while he got it. He kind of and then started he started realizing I'll tell you a little story on the side of that. Because he realized I wasn't worried about anything. He took me to St Andrews, um, second season or whatever, uh, the golf course. And I'd never played a golf course in my life. Uh, I knew I had a golf ball, but, you know, because you do when you grow up and you're Scottish, it's kind of people's game. But I'd never been on a golf course. Uh, come from East End of Glasgow, it just wouldn't happen. Anyway, my first ever golf shot in a golf course is at the first tee at the old course at St Andrews. And I went with my manager, and that's sitting there with him, and he got, we were two hours early, and he made me sit and watch all these other people teeing off, scared shitless, shaking, couldn't hit a ball. And these are all multi-millionaire businessmen from Japan and America. And, he, and then I walked up and he said, right, go and hit one. And he smacked the one down the middle. And he went, never lose that, mate. Just never. <laughs> you don't know how lucky you are. The amount of people that are held back by that fear, that nervousness, that whatever they want to call it. He says, you use adrenaline the right way. You control your adrenaline. He says, it's an amazing gift you've got there. And, and he goes, and it is a gift. Don't think you're special. It's just a gift. You're just lucky. <laughs> and it's a gift I'd give, be given from my parents. So, you know, I, I, everything that happened then, I was just thinking, okay, I'll be cool. I'll be fine. And I can never, you walk out, by that point, a, a year or two later, I'd I'd played, no, in fact, before that, I played in front of 110,000 people at the Aztec Stadium, uh, Mexico versus Scotland under 21s. Didn't bother me. <laughs> played in Scotland, England games afterwards. Nah, no, nah, no, just go and enjoy it. Be keen, be up for it. It's not that you don't care, but it's just that you don't fear it. Um, so that's, it's kind of funny thing. It's an unusual thing, um, but it's a thing that I, and now that I'm talking to you on this particular podcast, I, I, I know I was doing it. I know I was using it. I know I was manipulating my mind to feel that way. Um, because maybe when I was very young, I probably felt nerves or worried about things. What stopped me? I don't know. But I just decided to control my mind, and that was probably about 13 or 14 years ago. Absolutely fantastic, because it seems that it was a gift I kept on giving. And, you know, you reminiscing about all these early memories, it, it kind of strikes me. I'm always profound when I have people coming on the show and speak about their earliest football memory and what bergens from that. And it's a case of how some memories live longer in a memory than others. And with all respect to Chelsea, I mean, you played at Chelsea making under 200 appearances, you know, plus 30 years ago now, between 1984 to 1988. But it's a time that will live long in most Chelsea fans' playbook in terms of the players that were coming through at the time. Yourself, Kerry Dixon, Speedy, achieving promotion during that tenure. You also achieved two Player of the Year awards. I mean, how profound an impact was Chelsea on not only your career, but life? Only, only in hindsight. By the time... I don't know, I was just cruising along, uh, no plan. 
just do the best you possibly can. Really enjoy it. I have to say I was having a brilliant time. I was meeting, eventually after a year or two, I started to meet really good friends in London. Um, started to find more and more interests uh, down there. Um, the football went pretty well, you know, as you say, a couple of times player of the year. Um, so it had kind of an effect of, right, okay, I can do this thing. Um, I won't be able to do it for that long. Maybe five, ten years if I'm lucky. Ended up being 18 years, but, you know, I'll, I'll just enjoy it and I'll just keep doing it until it's no longer enjoyable or I'm not good enough or they kick me out. And it was that kind of feeling of you walk out and you're at Old Trafford and you're playing for Chelsea and then later Everton. I mean, people go, wow. People always say to you, what was it like? And you think, yeah, it was all right. I was at work. <laughs> I was doing my work. I was doing my job. Now, that's not to say there weren't fabulous highs, especially when you scored or made a goal or done something very, very creative. So there is, there are the highs there and they're brilliant. So that kind of, that formative time in, when you're in football, I think that's what you were getting to in your initial question. Are you going to turn your head? Are you going to change? Are you going to be unbelievably pleased with yourself because you can kick a bit of leather about? Um, it might have touched me a wee bit. I didn't feel it. Um, my then girlfriend, now wife, probably wouldn't have let me away with it anyway. She's just as down to earth, normal. Um, so, but now and again, you I suppose you walk along and people are saying hi and autographs and all the rest of it. I'm going to try and explain something. And the listener find, will find this really, really hard and because it, it's so weird, right? I was so against the concept of fame and all that stuff that for a while when people ask me for autographs at the start, I always ask them for theirs in return. So it was a, a shared equal thing. When that's dead weird now, we you know <laughs> it's dead weird when you look back on it. Well, I try to explain, hey, I'm not any better than you. I just happened to kick a ball. So you want my autograph? I'll take yours. And it was, and people going, what? Pardon? Don't understand how that works. <laughs> um, but I, after a while, I just thought, oh, stop being so earnest. Just be nice, chat to people. Anytime anyone wants a photo or an autograph, it's, it's just, be very happy to talk to them. And, and it's, the nicest thing is, and you'll be acutely aware of this, Connor, when people meet me, wherever it is, I'll just talk and we'll chat. And within a couple of sentences, it's no, it's definitely not a, oh, wow, it's Pat. It's a, or actually we're friends talking at a level here. And that is the, the imperative to make sure that people understand that, you know, I, I happen to do that job, but it doesn't make me extra special. It makes me quite good at doing that job. Um, it makes you extra special that you follow the team and spend all your money and are dedicated. That I think that's just as special because I see my dad do it all his life. So I was I always admired that. So I had some very different outlooks from maybe what you would think most players had. Um, but then I didn't come up through the same background. They came up academies or through youth development and reserves and all that. I didn't do any of that. I was doing a degree and then get parachuted into the first team. So would I have been changed had I gone through that other route? No, I'm afraid not. Because <laughs> I was already different by the time I was 14 or 15. So uh, it's, it's kind of, 
there's a, there was an unusual and outsider viewpoint that I had, and to sometimes treat it that way. But if there's still, if there is a, if there's a message, any message whatsoever, that beats all the other messages in my first book. It was simple. It's okay to be different. It's fine. And all the way through the book, that's all. I'm telling you that time and time again about the different things I do, the way I do them, the way I think. It's okay to be different. You don't have to be a sheep. Mm. I think it's so very important. I mean, you speak of that outsider viewpoint too, just having a stronger sense of identity beyond the white lines of a football field. And I mean, there were two guardians at the time, I'd like to say, two Johns, John Neal and John Peel. Mm -hmm. That kind of provided you with that safe space too. I mean, be it John Neal, first team coach at Chelsea at the time on the field, and then John Peel of the BBC. I mean, I've read in several places now, Pat, that used to appear in the Peel show on Wednesday night at the BBC at the time. Yeah, regularly. Um, he didn't always mention my name. Um, in fact, very, very, very rarely. Because the whole point is, John and I got on so well because we had so many things in common. And one of the most obvious things we had in common is that we were both in industries that we absolutely loved, but we loved them for the purity of the art. So he loved the music. He wasn't a smashy and nicey DJ who was trying to do what all the other DJs were trying to do and be sort of well-known and doing rounds of advertising and living a kind of stupid life and selling themselves constantly. He was selling the music. He was just playing the beauty of the music. Um, and felt very much an outsider within his community. Uh, and he really did. And he was a complete outsider, you know. And I was exactly the same. I was a complete outsider in the community that I was working in. It happened to be football. I didn't dislike the other footballers, but I also didn't like the fame. And he was exactly the same as me. He couldn't stand that kind of what we felt was superficial. Super, we didn't sit and chat about how superficial it was. like, But we were very similar, and that's why we got on immediately. It was a lovely thing because he'd been my kind of hero. However close you get to heroes, I've not, not really got heroes, but, you know, he's somebody I admired greatly. And um, it was, to meet him was brilliant. And then to slowly but surely just become great friends. It was astonishing. Um, and of course, I was a fanatical musical as well. That was my big thing. You know, spent, certainly spent more time, you know, involved in going to see gigs and stuff like that than... I would have done involved in football. You, you know, loved the football, but it was kind of second slightly. So I love both of those things. There's nothing only having two loves like that. Um, so he was, he was a really good one. Whether he kind of, my dad gave me kind of um, what the, his, the benefit of his wisdom in so many ways. John did now and again, but it, it kind of wasn't that. that was, it was more just friendship. Um, and there was another John, obviously John Neal, who you mentioned. And, uh, some lovely stories about John, and he immediately, if not fully understood me, if he immediately accepted me. And one of the great things he used to do very, very quickly after was in the Chelsea team. Remember, I'm 19, just nearly 20. And he's saying, you know, ready to these, I'm a spindly wee kid, and he's already saying to the players at the end of the team talk, right, okay, yeah, give the ball to Pat and you'll win. And like, I'm. Well, what what would most kids do? <laughs> they'd be worried. They'd be shit. Uh, and I went, yeah, fair enough. And how did he know? I'd like I'd be okay with that. How did he know that the other players wouldn't turn on me because of that? 
you know, you mentioned Speedo and Kerry and players that have been there a lot longer than me that were more, you know, the Kerry scored more goals and all that sort of stuff. How did they know? How did he know that that wouldn't turn really bad for me then? It's because he was a wise man and he was a, a, a good understander of people. And just before I came, he'd had a, a what you got a push. And um, he'd certainly get rid of a lot of players that he thought didn't reflect his his ideologies. So what he had left was a group that were mostly reflective of his of his ideologies. So um, it was fantastic to have a manager that a believed in you, and b just said, right, if you got if you got something wrong, I'd tell you, like tell me. Um, but I, I can never really get remember getting a bollocking from. And I think, and I know why it was, because Neil was always trying. Neil was always trying the hardest I could possibly do. I wasn't just a, a guy who's standing out in the wing. That was the only thing we disagreed about. I'd never played in the wing before I went to Chelsea. And he wanted me to be a winger. And I'm going, I'm not a winger. I don't play wing. Uh, but I get stuck out there and I never get back in again. So, but I trusted his judgment to a, a good degree. Um, so it was great to have somebody like that behind you. It was his assistant, Ian McNeil. Um, and as I went through my career, it similarly kept on going like that. If you've got a manager who trusts you, knows that you're trying to do the right thing all the time, knows that you're incredibly hardworking, and you are trusted to create enough, even when things go wrong, uh, it's fabulous to work under. Um, and I got that with him. I got that with Colin... Harvey afterwards as well. I got that with a guy called um, Johnny King after that as well. So, but in the midst of all them, I also got the reverse of it with a replacement who didn't trust you. And that's just life. That's just sport. That's just business, to be honest. Some managers like some types, some managers like others. Mm. It's interesting because, I mean, listening to you there, I mean, character is such an infinite game. It's not a finite game. And, you know, life will always come back to you and always magnify who you are. And it's no wonder to me, you know, you looking back upon all this in hindsight, Pat, in terms of the type of character that you excelled under between managers and the groups of players that you were around. But what I'd like to say, too, is, I mean, it's completely underrated, you know, doing something for the sake of doing it, for the pure joy of actually playing the game, because throughout your career, you were gone, going on to accumulate... 821st team appearances. You believe in hindsight a long career as such would have been possible if you had probably held, let's say, a different outlook or more serious outlook on the game itself? I don't know. I, I think probably not because of my personality because the stress levels would have been higher for a longer time. Um, and that has an effect on you. Um, certainly, I was quite relaxed for the vast majority of my career and, and comfortable in myself and my skin. So that can help me cope with the other problems. I, For me as a player, had I been stressed, I might have done better, but I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have done. So it just wouldn't have lasted because I'd have been playing games I didn't play well because I'd been worried um, and playing through fear. And there's no point in being a creative when you're fearful. It honestly just doesn't work, you know, you have to believe in what your goal, art, love is. You've got to believe in that. I, I, I just strongly think that. And if you watch some of the very, very best in the world, it's easier to see with them 
you know, so if you watch Federer, do you think he looks that nervous all the time or do you think he looks quite comfortable in his own skin where he is, especially in the big moments? Um, so I had I had a different mindset, I it just wouldn't have suited me. And I suspect by that, I wouldn't have enjoyed it. And had I not enjoyed it, I probably wouldn't have stayed in the business. I'd have went and did, you know, the, the rest of my family did finish the degree and went on to have, you know, inverted commas, a perfectly normal life. Um, I'm kind of happy I didn't because it's been great fun doing it this way. Um, but just trying, the reason, again, the reason why I talk about it quite a bit, the types of mindsets, and I get, it's, it's even, certainly in the second book, the um, football and how to survive it, it's clearer that it's harder. It's much, much harder at the end because the, the playing field is no longer level. It's miles away from being level now. One of the great things about football um, and most sports is it's a meritocracy. You know, it generally, it's not perfect meritocracy, but it's pretty damn close to a meritocracy. If you ain't good enough, you ain't, you ain't getting there, mate. <laughs> Full stop, right? Uh, but you can also be good enough and fail. That's the difference. So you need to have a lot of things. So I, that kind of meritocracy, I absolutely and completely and utterly love. But then nearer the end of my career, when I'm chief executive and playing at the same time, well, that gets harder. <laughs> and to keep the absolute love of it when some ugly things are really happening there, that, that's hard. But I just managed to keep it, you know, the whole way through, all the way from those Chelsea days, it's dead easy. Uh, through difficult times, good times and bad times. By the end, it was like fingertips. I'm holding on <laughs> to the love of it. But I managed to do that. And I kind of underlines, so jumping right to the end of my career, is the day I walked, the day I, my last day playing football, I was a game from Motherwell against Rangers. Last game of the season, we won 2-0 against Rangers at Fair Park. And I honestly, I picked up my diary because I was writing these books to look at what I said about this last day of a 19-year career with 850 top-level games, you know, because I've got 28 internationals as well. And the whole the whole page was just two words. Oh, well. <laughs> I think it was last day of my career. Oh, well. And honestly, that was it. That, that honestly was it. Okay, that was good. Move on there. Um, whereas I never wanted to be that person that I'd seen so many times before that craved and missed it and felt the life was over. Um, and I didn't, didn't want to be that. And I knew I wouldn't be that person. But I kind of knew in that moment, actually, no, I'm going to be fine. This is going to be okay. I'm going to fall to the next thing. Um I think that's a healthier attitude because you only get one life. Um, whereas I, I'm not dismissive of those who have lived in this fabulous world with people adoring them, um, crowds singing their name, if that means something to you, especially if you start living off that adrenaline, the money they get, the adoration, it becomes who they are. Um, that I get that. I absolutely get that. Um I feared that, whereas some of the people, I feared it because when it's gone, it goes, like, it's like, gone. And I knew that. I can see that when I was 50, 60. And I watched the players, and it's, you know, it's like the young men, particularly young men, it's left for the moment. 
you know, that's a total, there's nothing wrong with that either. But when you come out at the end of it, you should be prepared because if you're not, as we all know, very soon afterwards, the adulation's gone, the camaraderie's gone, the job's gone, sometimes the money's gone, sometimes the relationship's gone. The entire world that a lot of these people had, because it was based around this one thing, which was you are a professional footballer. And when you no longer are that, if that's who you base yourself around, some of the relationships were built on that. And it's not a bad thing, it's just life. You know, it's just the way it is. So um, certainly I, I felt quite comfortable the way I looked at it. And no, I don't think I'd have had as many games. That was a long answer, a very short question. Oh, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, there's several different themes I want to jump into as a result. And it's like, you know, you can't have your confidence tied to task competence. You know, the old adage of Mike Tyson being world heavyweight champion of the world and being depressed at the same time, you know, and then reflecting back upon your own career, I mean, you're not just another player. I mean, who you were on the football pitch was an extension of Pat Nevin, the man, and, you know, there will never be another Patrick Nevin that plays football ever again. I mean, nowadays, taking us to the modern day, I mean, do you see this uniqueness this unique kind of spell for creativity. Do you see it the spelling from the game at all, Pat? Um, no, I, I, I absolutely delight in the people that I see that can still hold on to it. And there's no reason why you shouldn't. Absolutely none at all. Just because there's more money, just because there's more fame, just because it's more, you can still live. You can be normal. Have a like one matters often. Somebody I talk about, just a normal bloke. He's all right. He's cool. He give a lot of his money back to charities and things like that. Um, I watch David Silver when, at his best and just think, yeah, you've got it. You, you're okay. I don't even know you personally, but you're kind of cool and calm and comfortable with it all. And certainly I, I think there was a, a kind of reaction from the continent, certainly Spanish attitudes uh, on the field. He said, when Spain, Spain is not really behaving particularly well in the football world at the moment, um, but certainly some of the Spanish attitudes are some of the players. Um, it does seem to, they seem to love the beauty of it as well. Um, so I, I I still see it. I still see it quite regularly, you know. And I watch. I I seem to love my Japanese players as well. I've got this thing about Japanese players. There's like I've got a kind of and South Korean as well. Um, I, I've got I happen to have a personal passion for South Korea. It's weird. Um, spending a month over there, I could live there. I love the place. It's got its problems like everyone else, but. Uh, but you watch someone like Matoma at Brighton, um, it's just, you know he's doing it because he loves it. You know it's, and there's an honour to the way he's doing it. There's a pride in what he's doing and doing it the right way. And also he is a beautiful creative artist. You know, so I, they're there. Those players, to some degree, are there. You don't want anyone to be like yourself because everyone's their own selves. You know, and you talk about the other sides of my life where, you know, so the political sides of it that I was involved in at the time, stances and, you know, particularly anti-racism stuff back in those days. You know, you see Marcus Rashford doing it now and others doing it now. It's great. There's people still there standing up. You'll get hit. You'll get pilloried. But as, as long as they can cope with it mentally. Um, I always do worry about that like, slightly because I, it was always quite easy for me to cope with it men mentally. And even now, I get dogs abusing um, certain people. It's a particular group on social media. I don't care. <laughs> I really don't care. In fact, I'll tell you a wee secret. 
I'm away from it. I see him now really bad when he comes in. I go, I'm build this one here. Come here. And we come over and we look at it and we go back through it to see, to get to the core of who, can I know who he supports? I know who he supports for a reason, but they try and hide it. But you go into a page, you know, and you find it, go, oh, there it is. <laughs> it's actually a hilarious game. So I'm one of these people who looks forward to that. <laughs> and I mean, of course, Pat, I mean, for now on the last 30 years, you've been quite heavily involved on the journalism side of things. But at the very start of that tenure, and it was to coincide with the end of your playing career, mm-hmm. you had a few years as Motherwell chairman, and then you also served as PFA chairman for four years. So I'm going to take us through that period. Yeah, the, the chief, the chairman of the PFA was when I was at Tranmere. And that was, again, quite stressful. Um, business is stressful. You know, the business side of it, particularly because um, I, I think the difficulty then was people were generally doing some things wrong, you know, be it Eric Cantona drop kicking somebody. And then they asked the, the chairman of the PFA to go and, you know, back him up. And you're thinking, well, I didn't do that. <laughs> That's his problem. <laughs> and like the whole world was talking about this drop kick. I mean, it is one of the most iconic things that's ever happened in the game ever. I mean, really, it's up there with Zidane's headbutt. And it, you know, okay, it happened down at Crystal Palace, but it was a kung fu kick. And like, and I'm as, as his chairman of his union. You're supposed to try and make a case for him. I'm going, no, <laughs> but you have to. So that's one time. That was maybe when I write about it. That time, I often use that as, as uh, one of the examples because it's an interesting one and it's a story in itself. And the moral position of yes, you should be a good union representative. You should help your members, but then there comes a time when should you? You know, and then there's, which is the same argument as you get in a court of law. Everyone should have, you know, doesn't matter if you're the worst evil person in the world, you should have good counsel. And doesn't make the counsel an evil person just because they're working for an evil person. Anyway, or a bad person or a kung fu kicker. So that, that there were difficulties in that. And then there was all sorts of wrangling, uh, you know, within the football world at the time because the the Premier League was starting in England. The PFA, we had strike ballots because we were getting railroaded by the, certainly by the, the, the new Premier League to change all the contracts of our members and we weren't having it. And it's kind of, if your name's on the ballot paper as the chairman, it's kind of <laughs> great. So there was all, so there was millions of stress with that. And, the, and there was the daily little ones, but there was also positive ones as well. Where I know the great work that the union was doing. So, and we're doing some phenomenal work and still do. So, you kind of did that. And was, my earnest side was kind of well taken care of with that stuff for a while. But in the midst of it, oh, you're still being, you know, you're still being a player, you're still being a pro. You know, at Tranmere, and we're a good team. We're, we're knocking on the door of the Premier League year after year after year. So, it was an interesting time. But, and then, of course, family and all that. So, that part of life gets different. And that's when the biggest test, so the biggest test of coping isn't when you turn up as a 19 year old playing for Chelsea and get player of the year. That's, that's easy. In comp- it's not easy, but it's easy in comparison. What's hard is later in your career when you're, you and your stuff battering in and you're getting a little bit older. Um, you're playing for the team, but there's also problems and difficulties at home. 
sometimes, you know, you've got children and everybody who has got children has got problems. You know, it's, it's like a sleep. There's all sorts of things that go on. You know, we'd, we weren't earning the sort of money then you could, you know, you could get that taken care of with nannies and stuff. Not that we'd want, want, wanted to. So there was lots of complications. That. And then our son, Simon, was diagnosed autistic, which, you know, it doesn't matter what you're earning or what you do. That's incredibly hard. Uh, part thing to happen to life. So when you get that sort of thing happening and you're getting a little bit older and, you know, you're losing people that are close to you. That, and then you can't really go and talk about that because football folk go out here about that. Well, they didn't then. <laughs> Certainly didn't then. So you deal with all this stuff and you're trying to stay in love with the game, in love with playing the game. But also now, finally, there's a financial imperative, which there wasn't there before. And that changes things. And that's when that dichotomy I was talking about before, that's when it becomes tough. That's when it's a real strain. And you start questioning, am I doing this because I love doing it? Or am I doing this because I need to make money? You know, and it's probably both by that point. You know, and if you can actually keep that love there, well, by the way, the money's really handy now because you need to take care of a young family. You don't want it. You just want to take care of your family. So that that was oddly fabulously helped because at Tranmere I was having just the most brilliant time. A great manager, brilliant team. Um, had Aldo up, John Aldridge up front, so it was easy to create goals. Um, and lots of good players around us. And a lovely, lovely feeling around that stadium. And I had chances to go back to the Premier League. But as my wife kept on saying to me, why? You're happy? <laughs> you always said you did this because you loved it? I mean, that's absolutely true. I'm really comfortable. So I always knew that people would look back and go, oh, you scored X amount of goals and you played for these teams. Oh, and you only played for Tranmere back then. And I'm thinking, hmm, I could have played for bigger teams if I wanted to. <laughs> it was on. Will I get worried about that? Of course not. Because remember, I don't have the dynamic of wanting to be famous and loved and have a huge big legacy. Bloody unimportant. We're here for a wee while and then we die and we go somewhere else or don't go anywhere else. Only enjoy it while you can. Everything else is secondary. Um, because I always had that kind of exact same attitude, it never bothered me. It was really, really good. So, you know, then it was hard. But then eventually, leaving there, usual problems, the new manager, so you have to move on. Uh, had a brilliant year at Kilmarnock, went back home to Scotland, and I'm finally going back home because we know we're always going to live here where I'm sitting now. Um, but then when I went to Motherwell, then it, it, the whole career was kind of, although a bit odd, it was also a wee bit obvious. You know, start at a small Scottish club, move on to a bigger one, you know, in England, you know, do quite well, get a big transfer and then go down to a slightly lower level. It's a, it's a normal problem, you know, the usual. You know, from a distance, it's the usual, right? And then a year up at Kamarnock, and it's, you know, Scottish division, there you go. So it's just kind of perfectly, although I have unusual things in the midst of it, the actual career's kind of normal parabola, and then it goes mental. <laughs> it just goes wild. In the last four years, are utterly and completely and totally bizarre. And uh, the amount of people who have read the second book, which deals with that last four years, is the second half of my career in the last four years, they all say the same thing. Everyone just says the same thing. They say it reads like a thriller. 
it gets that extraordinary tense and massively stressful. And it was stressful. But the football never was. The actual kicking the ball was was by that time the release. That was when you can go and forget all that stuff and you do that. Because if you're chief executive of an organization, um, the buck stops where you are. Hey, and the shit hits the fan, you're standing beside that fan. Um, and every single occasion. And things go well, it's not going to do you, do with you. You're just the chief exec. That's the manager. He he did great. Or the players, they did great. When you're no longer, when I was chief exec and not player. So at that point in time, that, and also that was hugely stressful time-wise. So that was an extraordinary thing to deal with. Um, and here's the odd thing. And I know, Connor, you've got interests in various areas, lots of different areas. And people who listen to this podcast will maybe be interested in working within the sport. I didn't have a, a massive interest. I kept on being offered managerial jobs and then chief executive. I didn't even want to be chairman of the union. They scammed that on me. And it sounds ungrateful. I know it sounds ungrateful, but I'm not going to lie to you. And I wouldn't lie to anyone. It wasn't enjoyable doing that job, the, the executive role. It really wasn't enjoyable for my type of personality. And that's the clue. If you have the type of personality that does love that sort of trouble, um, I don't mind problem solving. Quite, if I love problem solving, but when it's skewed almost like if you listen to watch politics now and you watch a politician come on to the telly and try and talk, right? And they're getting battered by the interviewer who, who's only looking for one weakness, right? Now that politician may have done 99 great things yesterday. Doesn't matter. They're only looking for that one thing. That's what we're looking for, right? And that's the deal. Well, that's what it's like being a chief exec. You can do so many brilliant things, time after time after time after time. But they look for that one problem. They look for that one difficulty. They're trying to get in there. And that's their job. No complaints. That's the job. That's the game. That's the gig. And even as much as I tried to be normal and friendly and chatty and was just never changed my personality when I was with all the journals, um, you know that they will, even if he, this is the subtlety of it, you don't have to have done anything wrong. You just have to look as if you've done something wrong or you were in a no-win situation. Because there are, there are some zero-sum games, aren't there? And you jump one way instead of... And you, and whatever way you jump, you'd have got hammered, right? I had this with uh, per, per, perfect uh, Freudian slip there, as in I was talking about hands and then I was going to talk about Andy Gorham and I smacked the microphone on it. Andy Gorham had got any trouble and whatever I did, if I stuck by him or I sacked him, I would have been battered out of it. And I knew that. And it, it gave me this wonderful feeling of, oh, right, there's no easy way out. Good. I'll do the bloody well right thing. Then. <laughs> it's so easy. And it was people, you had all these people around you saying, if we do that, they'll do this, they'll do that. And, and if we say that, they'll say that. And I'm going, why don't we say the right thing? We're not just say the right thing. Just do the right thing. Be correct. Be honest. <laughs> like that's an unusual concept. <laughs> so, and and it's easy for me because if I leave or get sacked, which I do eventually leave, I don't get sacked. Um, the shoulders the shoulders get shrugged again. 
and I move on to the next thing. Um, so it's not going to hurt me. But others who life and soul wanted to be in that particular position and given a lifetime to us, but I understand why they got upset and they got angry and they tried to not do the right thing. So it was just, it was an extraordinary place to go to. Um, that I've never really had to go to again, but I learned so much um, about people, about particularly you learn most about people in their worst moments and the most stressful moments, and and indeed about yourself when it comes to it. When there's a moment somebody said to me, "I'll give you a hundred grand, hundred grand, if you do this," and it kind of no skin off my nose really to do it, except it was the wrong thing to do. I said no. <laughs> that was when the hundred grand was quite a lot of money, um, and you just think, and that was we were under a lot of pressure then. I remember thinking, all right, I know, I know who I am now. Actually, I remember going back to wife and saying, like, honestly, darling, I'm going to have to tell you this. <laughs> and she went, thank God, you did the right thing. Um, so it's you kind of find out a lot about your, other people, but you find out a lot about yourself in that situation, in those situations. And it's interesting, I mean, pushing the executive career aside and moving into broadcasting, I mean, does the sense of thrill, the expectation, replicate as a broadcaster any of the flow, I suppose, that you had experienced as a player? Right. Uh, so as we talk, uh, I did Newcastle beat Liverpool last week. And then I did Celtic Rangers game. Oh, seriously, Rangers Celtic game. And I'm doing Scotland v England in the next couple of days, and then I'm off to Newcastle versus AC Milan over in Milan, right? It's great. Come on, it's a good job. And it is good fun. Talking about football, I'm watching good football and exciting football and entertaining football. Last year, I went to Milan versus Inter Derby at San Siro, and it was one of the best atmospheres I've ever come across. It was amazing, you know, and just and, and they're paying me to do this, right? Not a lot. It's BBC, remember? But they're paying me to do this. So no complaints at all. The biggest game that I've ever covered as a journalist stroke, be it a, and I've been to World Cup finals and things like that, right? And Europe Champions League finals, etc. None of them get close to coming on a sub for Clyde at the beginning of my career. And a non-entity of a game away at Aloha or Australia. Playing battles watching in the long grass by so far. It's just, and it's, you often get people say to you, because you know, they want the, they want this answer. They want the answer of, God, you're doing the, the Champions League final. That's amazing. It's so exciting. It's wow. And you go, yeah, it is. It's brilliant. It's nowhere near as good as playing. It's been close. It's not even the same ballpark. Um, and people get quite offended by it until you say, well, you have to understand playing's great fun. Playing is, it's you. It is, you're not a spectator. You are part of the action when you're a spectator. Yeah, you are. But being absolutely crucial to the, the action and being inside it and the joy you can get from what I love, my part, I love the creative side of it. Side of it. Nothing comes close. It's not even, and I've done so many World Cups and there's so many amazing games at these World Cups as well. And, you know, I could go on forever about how great they were and how great a time they were. Doesn't beat Clyde V. Strunner. <laughs> or doesn't beat Motherwell versus Kilmarnock. You know, 
And that's that's just how good football can be. If if you're somebody who loves playing. That's the essence of the game itself. I mean, reading your first book, I mean, The Accidental Footballer, it was certainly an anecdote to your playing career. I mean, you've just released a second book, Football and How to Survive It. For all those listening, Pat, how would you best describe it? Um, well, as a second half of my career. So I, I'd always started off and was going to write, I write, I write myself, I don't get it ghosted. And um, so if it's rubbish, it's my fault. You've got to blame me. Um, and I'll take it. So, you know, I always knew it was going to be a trilogy um, because there were three distinctive parts um, that I wanted to write about and three distinctive different stories. One was all the way up to, you know, Chelsea and Everton and playing for Scotland, you know, like that rise and rise and rise in a career, but also give the life beside it and some of the strange things and some of the lessons you learned on the way. A lot of fans of my next clubs, be they were trying me out, come on or come other one, we're fuming because there's, there's only a paragraph at the end about their clubs and they're going, you, how dare you do that? You don't care about us. And I'm going, no, I care about you so much. You get the same as Everton. You get the same as Chelsea. You get you get exactly, in fact, more actually. And try and make it as much time as Chelsea because it deserves it because the things that happened there were interesting. So, uh, and just because it's not as big a club, didn't happen to be playing in the Premier League. It's kind of important because there's bigger things that happen. So what I wanted to do was, as in, as in the second book, was explain to people that however hard it is to get into football and get to the top, it just actually keeps on getting more difficult for a variety of reasons. And it's hard to stay in love with it, even though I just about managed it. Uh, it is hard for others, and I understood why. And what I tried to do in this second one is explain to people what it really feels like when you're stuck behind a situation, like a classic situation, I was having a really difficult time. As in, you know, we'd lost one of the last, a Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, international time coin, had lost his wife. And there was some extraordinary things going on in our lives at the time. Yeah, a few weeks later, people are thinking, oh, why is he, you know, he should be, be smiling and playing and be normal. And and the, the, they wouldn't give me sticks. I very rarely got stick in my career. But some of the lads would be getting stick hammered for their stands I'm thinking do you not know what these people have been through just now and then I think no you don't of course you don't you haven't got a clue and you're never going to know so I was explaining to people what it's like and the best example is always yourself of so what we were going through as a family and some of the difficulties we were getting through so there was a number of messages I wanted to get and and it's hopefully the fun's still there the characters are still there if you're writing something, you need to have a strong narrative. You need to have good characters. Well, the great thing about football is they just provide the characters. It's great. You don't even need to make them up. <laughs> just mental, these characters that you're working with. So I was able to do that. Um, but in the in reality, what I wanted to do is explain to people unusual situations that then happen really at the core of football, because I'm now chairman of the union. Um, then when I become chief executive, come back to Scotland and seeing how my country had changed the sectarian stuff that was going on. Um, so you're talking about the football, yeah, it's part of it, but there's so many other parts of it. Um, and certainly the second half of the second book, it's, it's basically saying to people, right, 
do you know you think you know what it's like inside a boardroom at a football club right you don't right this is what it's like and it's mental right? <laughs> it's more mad than you think and i'm able to kind of because i was there i was chief, i was chief exec and there was the board and you know i i see the decisions that have been made and you see things being done and you're going don't do that it's mental <laughs> it's just bizarre you can't do that it doesn't make sense financially it doesn't make sense and morally usually did because i didn't allow that past me but in every way you think no that's counter to every single thing you should be doing here um but business com businessmen come in and you know it's like the businessmen they, they think they know everything in the world because they've made a few quid right and like they don't <laughs> it's just because you're everyone thinks like like uh, you know these masters of the universe that are you know if you want that musk and all the rest of them no they're just kind of good at business doesn't it make you wise? Doesn't it make you phenomenal in lots? Because I've known lots of millionaires and billionaires and these people, I'm not in awe of them in any way. I don't think I'm better than them, but I can see their foibles. Uh, anyway, so, so all that's going on, and it's been able to explain. And of course, the, the, I get a real joy of writing humour. I love writing humorous stuff. Um, so anything I can get out of it that's humorous is in there. But in actual fact, there's a lot of heavy, serious stuff on it too. Um, so that I wanted to write that book to say to people, this is what it's like. And here is the, the real difference between mine and other people's books. You've heard lots of players or whatever write books, usually ghosted, right? Telling you what it's like inside football. And that's great. That's fine. Good. Well done. But what about if it's you, Connor or me, as an, an utter outsider, stuck in the middle of that madness, not seeing it from their point of view? So basically, I'm us stuck inside there saying, you wouldn't believe the things they actually think are normal, by the way. <laughs> and I tell you them and write them down. Um, so that was kind of, if there's a nub of that, the second book, it's to say, right, I'm going to bring you in here because I didn't get these people and I seen in a very different way. And I often said to them, the teammates, they often, my nickname was Weirdo for a long time. And I always used to say, no, no, you don't get it, guys. I'm the normal one. You're all weird. <laughs> and I still think that's the case. I'm the normal bloke. <laughs> they're really weird by the way they act, and they're getting a bit weirder now because of the bubble that's around them. So that was kind of what I wanted to write. And certainly what's been lovely about the second one, the first one, I was very proud of it, um, and it got to be a Sunday Times bestseller. The second one, almost every single person that's read it said it's a better book than the first one. Um, now, it won't sell as well, because it's not Chelsea and Everton, and that's what sells. But it's lovely when you hear that. And just back to what I was talking to you before about creativity. That's why I write, and because I love the creative side of it. And so there is that creative side that I miss. If I miss anything about football, two things. Number one, miss the brilliant fitness. I loved it. I love being that fit. And I'd still run, and I still keep myself in good neck. But uh, and you're talking to me the day after my 60th birthday. <laughs> uh, so but I also hopefully keep myself in decent neck. Um, but I miss the creativity as well. A creative outlook, outlet. Now, TV gives you that a wee bit. Radio much more. I've been writing for many people for, for many newspapers and that for a number of years. And that gives you a wee bit as well. But writing a book's different. That's, that's creative license to do your thing and hope people kind of 
A, like it, and B, um, get something out of it. Maybe learn something and understand something they didn't get before. So that's what the, the second one was about. Um, and also just saying to people, being chief executive, doesn't matter if it's a football club or Mars and Spencer's. It's the same gig. It's the same deal. It's the same shit. <laughs> and you need to know about all the dull marketing stuff. You need to know about um, every single part of sales. You need to know about, you know, forward planning. You need to know structurally how to work it. You need to be good with accounts. I have to be into accounts and finance and law. So that's what I studied. So you need to do all this stuff. And so you've got all these balls all up in the air at the same time. Um, and that's a kind of, to say that to people and explain that and then try and write it in such a way where uh, in the front of the book, uh, a countryman of your own, Roddy Doyle, he was he, he gave a quote in the front of the book, which I should probably try and read word for word, but he was basically saying, get out. <laughs> he was reading it going, no. <laughs> and I talked to Roddy about it and he just said it was, he loved the fact that it was, he could feel his heart racing when you're going through it. Um, so that's what I wanted to say. All these jobs from the outside look really easy and really great, but they are until they're not. And at one point they won't be. So it's an interesting area. I wouldn't talk anyone out of getting involved in, you know, certainly sports structure of, you know, organizational structure or the business side of it or the data analysis of it. There's lots and lots of sides of it. There are a million jobs in there. In fact, there's, there's far more jobs than there needs to be in that industry at the moment, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> there's a lot of charlatans making a fortune at the moment, which is uh, good luck to them. Well done. Um, but I wouldn't talk anyone out of it, but I'd also say, hey, there's the upsides, i.e. the fame, there's downsides to it as well. Um, the financial money, the money you get from it, the, war, the rewards, they're good, but you're going to take some stuff. You're going to have to get it in the neck, and you don't know, you don't know what's going to happen. It's like a bus that keeps going going around the M25 in London, and you're standing on the road, and it just comes around and hits you now and again. Nothing you can do. That's just the way it is, isn't it? It'll be media, it'll be social media, whatever. So, you know, go into it with your eyes open, would be my suggestion. Um and if you read the book, I hope it doesn't put you off it too much. Well, I mean, having read the first book, I well, I'm very much looking forward to having read it a second one. And for those more eager to have a read themselves, I'll include both books in the show notes below. But Pat, um, it's been an absolute privilege and an honor of mine to have finally got you on the show. And I suppose more, much more importantly, a belated happy birthday. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I, I, every day feels like a birthday to me and I, Age is just a number, as they say, and it doesn't bother me in the slightest. But um, no, I'm, it's, it's a nice thing. Funny enough, my wife said to me, yes, was, uh, what's the best thing about your birthday today? As we sat out in the garden having a glass of champagne on a balmy, boiling, warm evening, I'm thinking, well, the best thing about it is that it's like the same. It's like every other day. I felt like bloody well Barbie. <laughs> every day is great. <laughs> and so it was kind of just lucky. Been very, very fortunate. Um. So if ever one day I get round to finishing, I've kind of mostly written the third book. Uh, that's the one I wanted to write in the first place. And I've still not got to write. That was the first one I wanted to write, but I decided to write them chronologically. And uh, the third one's going to be about um, 
the life in the media and the traveling around the world in the last 25 years. Um, so in simple terms, that's been brilliant fun and definitely no stress. Nevin, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. And it's been a pleasure being on as well. Right, next business now. I have to go drive to Edinburgh and get my wife a birthday present because her birthday in two days' time and I better go and get and do, do that.